It's time to become a member of Playvolution HQ and Exploration's Early Learning. There's a free option and three paid patron-level options. All come with free stuff and ongoing automatic training and merch discounts. For as little as a dollar a month, you can become a patron. That supports our work, and you get premium stuff like early access to fresh podcast episodes. Go to explorationsearlylearning.com slash membership or click the link in this episode's description to learn more. All the cool listeners are doing it. On with the show. Hey, Jeff here. Just a little note about what you're about to hear. The Early Learning Journeys podcast used to be a standalone show I did with Tamar Jacobson. We decided to roll that show into the Child Care Bar and Grill and are releasing the 14 episodes that we did as standalone shows into the Bar and Grill feed so that they'll be here. Uh, also, stay tuned for fresh episodes of that show as tomorrow and I record them. Plus, tomorrow's going to pop on for non-interview episodes now and again as time allows. So uh, we're glad to have her aboard. So here's the episode. It's a it's a beautiful day. We're recording this episode in the first half of March. It's not going to release for a while after that. But I was out for a walk the other day, and it was, I saw decisive signs that spring is coming here to Iowa, where I am. There were were daffodils kind of pushing their little heads above the mulch. There were there were geese and ducks flying northbound. There were people out on their motorcycles. There were were swelling lilac buds. It was it was beautiful. Um, I'm sure we're. Denise is in uh, up in the Edmonton area of the Canada. It's still 40 below, um, but everybody's wearing shorts and stuff anyway, huh, Denise? Um, actually, it's been like plus 10, which is fabulous. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. I don't know what that is in America, but that's... Um, a- <laughs> but we have some grass. Oh, I'm well. pretty sure spring, though. Like, we get this we get this time where it's like, haha. It's, it's a fake spring. spring. And then we get a big snowstorm in March, like the end of March, beginning of April. Well, we can look forward to that. Mm -hmm. So Denise here is another guest on this show that I met via the internet years ago and uh, kind of fell in love with. I visited two programs that she she's worked at. Um, She started out out in the Nova Scotia and now she's out in the Alberta area. Um, you can take the girl out of uh, Nova Scotia, but you can't take the Nova Scotia out of the girl, huh, Denise? 100%, yes. <laughs> so, Denise, one of the things I love about her, Tamar, is her almost cellular belief of in children's abilities to to do things, and often things that many of the adults around them don't think they're capable of. And wow. I'm sure Denise is going to share some of those stories. She's worked with uh, some some challenging. I would say ch- ch- is challenging an okay word to use, uh, Denise. Some, huh? some challenging situations. 
Yeah. Yes. A lot of people see these kids as a challenge and their disabilities as a challenge. So yeah. And, and that's not, that's not to put a, a judgment on it. It's just, you know, no. some kids are in situations that are more challenging than others. And I want to, I want to really dig in and find out what, what led uh, Denise um, in this, in this direction. So Denise, where, where did you, where did you begin? My mom tells me I was born this way. <laughs> um, he told me that I was born to do this. Hold, hold, hold on a minute. What is this way? Um, to be the one that cares for others. Uh-huh. So my mom has four siblings. All of her siblings had a girl and a boy. Um, each boy was born with either cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, uh, or ADHD. So all three of them, my mom had two girls. I was the second born and all those boys loved me. They would only stay with me. They would only engage with me at family functions, even though I was younger than all of them. Um, she truly believed like I was born to hang out with and understand these boys and everybody after them. So that's really where I started. <laughs> so you're a born caregiver. Mm-hmm. I really was. So what was, where, where you were, you're born out in Nova Scotia? In Cape Breton. Yeah. Born and raised in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. And what was, what was childhood like? What was, what was family life like? What kind of kid were you beyond being a caregiver? Um, Childhood was small town, um, busy small town. It was a coal mining town. So we hung out outside. We did all the real kid stuff, hung out at the beach, when and when the lights went out, those typical types of things. But during the week, I started in childcare when I was 18 months old. So mom was heading back to school to start, or no, at that point, back to the fish plant to start working. And she put me at the town daycare. And I stayed at that daycare until I was 11. So I grew up in daycares. Then Um, Sundays, we would go to Sunday school. There was always people around. Um, I have my usual friends, but two things that always came up in reports to mom were, well, Denise never gets outside on time because she's always helping someone put on their coat. (laughs) Denise is so interested in what other people are doing or what they need help with that she isn't getting her own work done. (sighs) Denise talks too much. (laughs) Um, so these were the things that my mom heard my whole life. This is what she does. This is who she is. Mom's like, yep. Yep. Um, the other thing that was said a lot about me was, gosh, she's slow. She is so pokey. Why does she take so long to do everything? And I truly believe I took so long to do everything because I was either waiting for a friend to be ready to do what we're doing or I had somebody to help. I had things to do and people didn't seem to see my things that I truly believed I had to do. And so it would take me 45 minutes to walk home because I would walk everybody to their door. I live two blocks from the school. (laughs) So like this is deep down who I was and my daycare teachers were amazing at the time. We had all kinds of activities to do. We went on field trips together. But the thing I loved most about my daycare was they accepted all children. 
all children came. Um, I vividly remember the first time I ever got to find out how a child who was blind um, figured out how to pour his own water. So you'll hear me reference Pat quite often. Pat was what was called a resource coordinator back then. And she worked with the kids with special needs. And anytime I needed something extra special was when I got to go to Pat's office. If I got to go to Pat's office, I had an amazing day. And so Pat was showing James one day how to pour water. And she showed him to put his finger in and pour the water until that water hit his finger. And I can see the cup. I can see the water. I can see James in his little blue sweater. Like I know everything from that moment. And I was probably seven. And from that moment on, I was like, well, if James can pour water, anybody can do anything. So that was it. And uh, sadly for me, Pat passed away last year, but my whole life she would check in on me. Hey, Denise, how you doing? This is like the, the joy of a small town, right? She knew who I was growing up. She was at my graduation. She was at my wedding. Um, I actually had the opportunity to tell her how important she was in my growth, but I really didn't realize her effect on me until I was 36. I was about 36 when I really looked back and reflected and said, hold on, she's the teacher. She's the person that affected my belief system on people and their abilities. I, I, as, as we've been doing this show, and we've we've still only just done a handful of episodes. One thing that we're 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 really touching back on with a lot of people is those mentors in in their professional growth, and and most everybody has had had has had one or two pats in their lives that have mm-hmm. have guided them along the way. Well, anything else special you got from from Pat that kind of led you to where you are? Um, Pat always smiled. Oh my gosh, she was always smiling. And even though some staff members didn't follow through on her direction, and I often remind myself of this all the time, is that you can give an adult suggestions and directions. It does not mean they're going to believe and or follow what you've given them. And I used to get so frustrated with that because I'm like, I, I've been dealing with this. Don't you understand? I've been dealing with this. And once I realized who Pat was to me, I started to reflect on who she was as a person. And she was quiet and direct when she needed to be, but she also let people decide what they were going to do or who they were going to be in those moments. So if the adult didn't listen or follow through her direction, she just continued doing what was best for kids. And either eventually they would get on board and some of them never, ever did. Um, And that reflection for me, I worked at that same daycare I grew up in with the people that raised me. So it came back around full circle when between 10 and 14, I did not attend daycare. When I turned 14, I started um, doing summer programs as a volunteer When I turned 17, I started doing summer as a student uh, grant position. And then there was another two years I came back and I worked as a full-time staff member. 
in the units that I worked in with the people that raised me. And some of them found it very intimidating and some of them found it very interesting and engaging to work with somebody that they knew and someone that they raised. And when I look back, the people that found it intimidating were the people that never listened to Pat. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, huh. this, this all makes sense now. So other than, other than a couple of years in the, in the tween age years, you, you, how many years did you spend at that program as either a child or? My whole life, 18 <laughs> months. So a year and a half until I was 10. So that's eight and a half years. And then 14 to 17, that's up to 11. And then to 13 years in that one building. That's delightful. Um, they were like family to you. They really were. And mom, mom would say to me, oh, you didn't like that one when you were a kid either. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> So our feelings towards people when we're young, we still see those same people as those same people when we're older, if they haven't changed who they are, even if we have grown and learned and all those things, she's like, yep, you didn't agree with them when you were younger either. Okay. What kind of, besides being a, a natural born caregiver, what kind of kid were you? The, the adult Denise, I know, and, and true, we haven't hung out in person for a while, but the adult Denise I, I know is um, uh, strong-willed, a little bit opinionated and not afraid to share it, um, comes with a, 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 a side order of snark in certain situations, all things that I personally really enjoy. Were, were you those things as a child? or I was 100% those things as a child. I looked the same as when I was a child, and I still, I have the same attitude, the same outlook on life. The, I was the one that mom would say, oh, I need the girls watched. And someone would say, well, I'll take Denise. But they would leave my sister with my mom. <laughs> and so they knew that whatever was happening, I was going along with it. If we were going to town, I was fine with that. If we were sitting at home, I was fine with that. I would always find something to do. I would always... Saturday morning, mom would kick us out and I'd hear the door lock. Didn't bother me none. Out I went and I played until I couldn't play any longer. I also was the kid that had... Wait, I'm interested in that. Yeah. She booted you out the house? She sure did. Why? Um, um, I don't know what she did behind that door, but kids weren't allowed in the house. <laughs> so... Saturday morning, we had the TV when we got up early and we got the TV and we would eat some breakfast and she would get up and no later than 9 a.m. We were sent outside. Rain, snow, sleet, hail, sunshine, didn't matter. We were outside and you would hear the door click. Okay, mom's doing whatever mom does to this day. I have no idea what she did behind that door. And you've never been curious? Um, no, I was too busy being me. I was too busy going over to friends and knocking on their door and calling for them. And I had no idea that there was an adult world. Like we were never part of that. What about your sister? How many years between you? Two and a half years between us. And we're very different creatures. She would get kicked out and sit on the back lawn with her Barbies and she would stay there. Um, mom had to make boundaries and parameters for me at a certain age. I was only allowed two streets away on either side. 
When I got a little older, if I was with the older kids, I could go down to the shore for the day and stay at the shore. And I'm talking like eight years old, eight years old, with maybe an 11 year old as my buddy hanging out with them down at the ocean. So anybody these days that would say, oh, sure, I'd let my seven or eight year old go to the ocean with an 11 year old (laughs) would lose their minds. They'd lose their child. They would also lose their child. Someone would call on them. Yes. Um, And we will play. And I don't ever remember missing a meal, but I also don't remember what we ate for lunch or if we cared to eat lunch because we were out playing. Um, And I would hear my mom yell. There's my name. Gotta go. Or as it got darker, our parameters got tighter. And you only pushed it a time or two before mom reminded you very quickly that that's not a choice. I, I, I was going to ask that that invisible fence set up for you. Did you did you stray? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Good. <laughs> I'm a boundary pusher, as you know, and my mom knew that too. But being in a small town, everybody knew whose kid I was. Mm-hmm. There were definitely other boundaries that kept me in check. You knew you weren't going to the Brown house on 6th Street because that old lady would call your mother so darn fast. So we avoided 6th Street because we avoided her. And you learn these things. And I've always been someone that has had multiple groups of friends. So and I don't know if that's because of my ability to ebb and flow between personalities Um, But it always seemed, even now as an adult, my groups of friends don't mix together in their likes and their desires and what they like to do, but somehow they all work for me. So no matter if somebody wasn't home or didn't want to hang out, there was always somebody else. Did 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 you you ever have any experiences? Oh, go ahead, Tamar. I know. I just wanted to know if you you ever got uh, sort of punished. Oh, yeah. Um, I was a girl that got in trouble a fair bit. My dad was the um, the grounder, as we called it. And if I was up to no good or causing trouble with friends or not coming in when I was supposed to or not doing my chores, dad would would ground me. Um, but I vividly remember the last day I ever got grounded. I didn't do my chores and my dad got mad at me and I was it's nine, nine or 10. And I said, that's it. You're grounded. You're grounded for the weekend. Forget it. You're not going anywhere. But then dad packed up to go ice fishing. (laughs) And as Jeff said, I'm persistent and I can be a little snarky sometimes. So I follow my mom around, mom, 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 what are you doing? I'm bored. I'm not allowed to go anywhere. Entertain me. Um, it was that day that my mom told my father he was never allowed to ground me again or else he needed to stay home with me. (laughs) Um, So I was never grounded again after that point Um, for a fair reason. Dad had other things to do. He was a carpenter. He worked on the weekends and he couldn't sit around with me and have me drive him crazy. So to my advantage. I, I could not imagine taking you ice fishing. He, he goes out for some solitude and, <laughs> and he has talkative Denise with him. That wouldn't scare no. all the fish away. Mm-hmm. I only ever got to go once. Maybe that's why. <laughs> Are you, well, you, you spent a, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. 
Um, no, actually with our, with our personalities being as different as they are, we had a hard time connecting as children. Um, and she was very timid of things. She cried a lot. Um, I really enjoyed making her cry as a child. Um, I knew all the buttons. And even now as an almost 40 year old woman, she says, sometimes I can breathe funny and it ticks her off. And I'm like, oh, well, but why, what did I do? And most of the time I have no idea. I have no idea what I've done. And my mom is like, there's a 24 hour sweet period between the two of you. And then just someone has a tone or someone has an eye roll. Apparently that was my go-to thing as a kid was an eye roll. And my sister is just, her fuse is so short. It just takes a right off. Now, no. oh, go ahead, Tamar. It sounds to me like you don't suffer fools. No. <laughs> Tamar, did you just call her sister a fool? No, no. Denise, I got to ask, a couple minutes ago, if I recall correctly, you you said that you you moved back and forth between different friend groups pretty easy and, and pretty much got along with everybody but your sister. Mm. Um, so is that just the fact that it's a sister thing or is it the proximity always together things and the friends you get along with were not always with you or what's the, what's the dynamic there? I think it was more the lack of proximity thing. Right now, if my sister and I were being raised together, even if we weren't in a pandemic, we would be in the same house more often because families don't kick their kids out and lock the door anymore. I had options. I had options of an entire neighborhood full of kids that I could go play with. And I didn't need to play with her. I didn't need to bond with her. So when I would be with her and she would be doing things like crying and whining over stupid stuff that I couldn't understand, like, why are you whining about this? And so then it just didn't make sense to me to hang out with her when I could literally walk to the house connected to mine and find another child. So like, there's others. <laughs> I'm kind to her. Like, I'm not a, I'm not a pure jerk to her or anything. And I'm like, I'm compassionate to her and we can, we can go to a concert, we can go to a movie, but we're not sit on the phone and talk every day kind of sisters. Yeah, it's, I get that. So what kind of student were you? Um, I was a do what I need to do to pass. Um, it made my mother insane. Again, my sister was uh, a plus student all the time. And I was, uh, what do I need to do to get out of this house? And what is considered enough homework to let me be free? So my mom, I almost failed grade six. My mom got the phone call from the, from the teacher and the teacher said, listen, Denise has the ability to pass grade six. She can't keep her mouth closed long enough to get through a lesson. And she's not applying herself. And mom said, yep, that sounds about right. He said, well, it's up to you. Are you passing her or are you failing her? And so my friend got the same phone call and her mom said, fail her. And my mom said, pass her. So um, I got passed. And that same year, I got mad because my sister got a watch for making the honor roll. And I was like, I want a watch. Mom's like, you make the honor roll, you get a watch. I was like, oh, okay. So I go into grade seven after being told I was going to fail grade six. I make the honor roll. 
first semester, I get my watch, my marks go back down to 50s and 60s. My mom was vicious. Like she was so mad. She was like, why are your marks not staying up? I was like, I don't need them to. They're going to pass me anyway. I already have a watch. I have my watch, which she she didn't check my pockets one day and it went through the washing machine. So I only had it for like nine months. Well, like I said, you don't suffer fools. And sometimes school is full of foolishness. It is. It's full of all kinds of foolishness. And so I just, I had no time for that. I was at school to visit with my friends. I was at school, um, junior high, I would walk home instead of taking the bus so I could drop everybody off on the way. 45 minutes to walk home. Um, This time I was actually across town though. I wasn't two blocks away anymore. I was actually across town. But even in junior high, that was my preferred thing to do instead of going home. My sister's preferred thing to do was to get home and get those books open and read and read and read. And I was like, that's you. That's cool. That's not me. So I graduated high school with a 72 average, something like that. It was not grand. My mother was not impressed. She's like, how are you ever going to get into university? Like, what's going to happen? And I said, if I get in, I get in. If I don't, I don't. I'll figure it out. And so I got into the Institute for Early Childhood Education and Developmental Services. And my mom's looking at my marks and they're 90s and 100s. And she's like, why? Well, what's the difference? I said, I'm interested in this. This is what I know. This is what I love. I can do this in my sleep. Just give me the piece of paper. And I think that was the moment she realized that regular schooling just wasn't what was meant for me. But we didn't have options. When when did you realize that that was what you wanted to pursue? Yes, that's what what I wanted to ask because, you know, having such a history with school and yet you wanted to be in education. Well, uh, Tamar, the other thing is Denise has worked for a school district for years now, too. So uh, (laughs) I can't wait to see how we get there. Okay, so when I was 11, my aunt asked me to get my social insurance number. And I was like, okay, whatever, sure. Um, So I got it because she needed respite care. And the government would only pay somebody that had their social insurance number to do respite. My little cousin would only allow me to be with him. So he had cerebral palsy. He was nonverbal seizure disorder, um, no control over any part of his body. And um, he and I were tight. We were so tight. I would watch the earlier interventionists when they came into his home and how they would work with him. And in 1994, early intervention was still an extremely new thing. So that is where my love started to come in of what can he do? What's the difference of, is he just a body or what's that brain doing in there? Because there were things like, He found um, Jerry Springer was his favorite show. If people were yelling and hollering and going on like lunatics, he thought that was hilarious. So if I was babysitting him and chased his sister and she was screaming, he would just laugh and laugh and laugh. I'm like, why? Why does he think this thing is funny 
but not anything else. So he really piqued my interest in a lot of things. And he never, ever went to school. He went to daycare for a couple of years, but he never went to school. He passed away when he was seven. Um, but in those years, I learned to trust him. I learned to watch the people that were caring for him. Um, and he really made a huge impact in my life. And I said, why is he not going to school? So simultaneously, my other cousin who is two, three years older than me, um, has Down syndrome. And he was in a special education program at schools in my town. And I got to see the program and I thought, but he can do more than that. Why is he learning ABCs and one, two, threes in grade 10 when he can do more than that? And I was looking at his classmates and I was like, they can do more than that. Why are we not holding them to those expectations? Um, so even in high school, my brain was always wrapped around what are these kids doing in that special ed classroom? What can be different for them? How can it be different? And so um, the fact that they were in school was enough, I guess, in the 90s. Sadly, that's still kind of the mentality now. Right. But at least they weren't in someone's basement or they weren't sitting home in front of the TV or with mom at the kitchen table all day because they weren't accepted in society. So they at least were being accepted in society. But my little cousin, Dougie, had so much medical needs that the school couldn't handle that. Um, so I learned all kinds with him, how to do medications. He was on more medications than any grown man could handle. Um, I watched him snap his femur in half. Uh, that was a moment. Yeah, Jeff, his femur totally like in half and doubled over. That, that and doesn't he, sound comfortable. He laughed. That's how much medication he was on. He laughed. And he did it by stiffening his body. So that's how brittle his bones were. Uh. Um, so people say that I dealt with a lot of trauma. Um, I also dealt with him. I was babysitting one night and I woke up the next morning and I said, was dad, where's the baby? And he said, he's in bed. And I said, no, his sedatives wear off at eight o'clock. So even at the age of 13, I knew this. I knew his sedatives wore off because I gave them to him the night before. Um, and I went in and he was after taking a grand mal seizure. So he was blue and gray. I had to go wake up his mom, let her know what was happening. And he had a DNR on him. And because we don't, we didn't have the technology we have now, they revived him in the ambulance several times. Um, and he lived another four years, but those four years were so much more rough than the first three. He ended up on a feeding tube, more medications. That's when the femur broke. Um, everything really just went downhill from there. My mom was really concerned that I would never care for another child again. Um, but the, the, she sent me to a psychiatrist to make sure I was okay. And the psychiatrist said, I've never seen anybody so fine in my life. She's like, she just understands. She understands that this little guy probably shouldn't have been revived. And she's aware of the struggles that he goes through and the life that he's living. And so it was at that point that I said, people need to live a quality of life, regardless of how long that life is, 
and they need to be trusted and believed in from the moment they hit the earth because we don't know when they're going to go and we don't know what they have inside of them to have conversations or to tell us what they need. And we do on to people so often, especially people with disabilities, we do on to them instead of doing for them or with them or getting their consent that these were all things in my 14 year old brain. So that 14 year old brain, and even when you're a couple of years older, you've got all of this real world experience. And now you're graduated high school, you're in this early ed program. What was what was that like? Were they were they teaching things the way you believe them? Were 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 there conflicts? What was what was the program like? Um, the first two years for me, I found kind of boring. They were still doing a lot of here's how we do thematic based stuff. This is what a tantrum looks like. This is, so a lot of the time I was sitting there going, I know all this, just give me the piece of paper. Why am I paying you for this when I know it? And it was sort of the curse of having such life experience that I even, I understood thematic learning. I understood circle times. They were like, oh, how do you do a circle time? I'm like, I live circle time for eight and a half years. I know. You don't need to teach me. But of course, the government won't let me teach children until I have the paperwork. So then um, my English teacher would sometimes hook horns with me a bit if I said, why are we teaching them ABCs and one, two, threes? And she'd say, well, they need to learn them. I said, tell me why. Tell me why. Um, Tell me why often shut people down for me is that Um, I didn't know if I wasn't asking it with the right cadence, with the right tone, with the right sweet little smile, because usually when I get annoyed, my face talks long before anything comes out of my mouth. And it's a curse and a blessing, but it turns people off really fast when my eyes are saying all kinds of mean things. Um, So then we went into, I got that diploma and then I took their special education course because in my mind, I was going into early intervention. It was really starting to pick up in Nova Scotia. It was, uh, it was well paid for Nova Scotia means of things, which meant you got like a smidge over minimum wage. Um, but I took it and a lot of the times I would be like, so this is what I know. And they're like, oh, but this is what the book says. I'm like, I know what the book says, but between my cousins and taking kids to summer camps as a one-on-one aid for them when I was a teenager as well, um, babysitting multiple kids in the neighborhood, I had experience with so many kids with different needs that I could give them a different scenario for each thing. And they were so used to teaching by the book that they didn't have an answer for what I was questioning or thoughts I was bringing up on, well, why couldn't he come play soccer just because he has cerebral palsy? Doesn't mean he's completely invalid. Um, Doesn't mean he should have to stay inside. And so they would allow some of the questioning and then at other times I'd be shut down. Um, the other thing that really stands out for me is I was asked to watch a beautiful mind, you know, Uh the movie. 
Yes. I was asked to watch it because they believed that it was fabulous and wonderful about people with schizophrenia. And I watched it. I watched it six times before I wrote my paper. And my paper started with this movie is terrible. And right away, she took my paper and she stopped and she looked at me and she said, did you even watch the movie? I said, I'm going to tell you. I watched that movie six times and six times it showed that that's okay, that someone with schizophrenia should stop taking their medication um, and that they would be fine and survive in this world. And that that wasn't something that they needed for that mental health problem. I said, it was not okay. And it's not a good thing to be showing people. Yes. It's very clear that people with schizophrenia often and with a lot of problems, once they start their medication and no longer see their, their issues that come along with those mental problems, they say, oh, look at me, I'm fine. I don't need my medicine anymore. And they stop taking it. But it doesn't mean that they can all just survive well um, without that additional support. And that was my first real look at like mental health stuff. Um, a lot of my stuff before that was physical disabilities, but it really made me to start looking at mental disabilities and what they were doing, um, not only to people, but what were the medical community doing for people like that? And what were we doing in daycares and classrooms for people that needed uh, additional mental supports as well as physical supports? So how, how has all that um, affected how you work with children now? Just, I mean, before we go back again, but I'd like to know <laughs> how that's affected it. Um, so a quick blip right now, I'm at a school for kids. They all have learning disabilities, um, all diagnosed at least. <laughs> that is the least of most of their uh, diagnosis. A lot of them have ADHD. Um, anxiety is through the roof right now with a lot of our children. And it was long before even this year, anxiety has been peaking for like the last 10 years. Um, autism, all these things are coming into play. And a lot of our kids take medication. And I take this time to teach them when they're young, that what, how does your medication make you feel? How does it help you? How do you feel different if you aren't taking it? Um, it's really about empowering the kids and the people that I work with on what, what is it for and how is it benefiting me? And so we talk and I talk bluntly to adults as equally as I talk to children. And a lot of people um, are a little taken back by that, that I'm very direct with children but they know I'm never going to mess around with them. I'm never going to give them a false answer. And I've had a lot of kids come to me and say, I know you're not my teacher, but I have a problem. I know you're not my teacher, but can we talk? Yeah. Come talk to me. What's up? What's going on? And I've had grade six boys talk to me about, well, why does this guy get all the girls? I was like, okay, let's have that conversation. He's the big, cool guy, but is he nice to those girls? No. Well, do you want to be nice to girls? I said, listen, you might not have a lot of girlfriends in your life. That's okay. 
And so it's being very direct with them and they hold those thoughts. I still get emails from those boys like three years later, just checking in to see how things are going to let me know what's happening in high school land now. So it's, it's really good for me to know that even though I only hung out with them at recess, that I still had a big enough impact on them and their mental health and that they know that there's an adult that they can lean on. So, Denise, tell the it's a little bit out of sync here, but um, tell the story about uh, the program I visited in in Halifax about the what was it the little girl and the fence and the wheelchair? Oh yes. So I worked at a program called We Care in Halifax. We Care um, was known to be it's a not nonprofit daycare, and they. Start, they opened up to include children with special needs. That was their main goal when they opened. And so 20% of the population of that daycare had some sort of special needs. We have physio on staff and OT on staff. And there was this one girl and she loved to wheel around in her wheelchair outside, but she also loved to climb. And one day we turn around and she's partway up the fence with her wheelchair hooked on her hip. She is strong as an ox. And so one of the teachers turned around, she freaked out. She tried to pull her down off the, off the fence and the little one smiled. She giggled and she went to climb the fence again. I was like, if she wants to climb, like let her climb. If anything, we should just be unhooking that wheelchair from her hips because good gracious, that's heavy. Make it a little She's bit easier. Not- yeah. She's not going to get over that fence. It was like a 10 foot fence, something like like it was high. So even though you say, oh, she's wheelchair bound, it doesn't mean her urge to climb is gone. That doesn't mean her desire to do the same thing as her peers is not there. It's totally there. Um, But luckily with that daycare, we were able to empower a lot of children and empower a lot of parents. Um, That was, that's really where my love lies in daycare. Kids know I believe and trust in them, but I can have, uh, I can have a bigger effect on them if I can affect how their parents and family members see and treat them. And so that was, that was one of my biggest pieces of being in a daycare. Am I misremembering this or you had multiple kids in that program that weren't supposed to be able to walk, for example, Mm -hmm. start walking? Yeah, we um, and the medical community didn't love us sometimes because we pushed boundaries that they had already cut off. Well, here's little Dylan. He's not supposed to walk. Well, he came to us and he was army crawling. Um, and so we have what we call the graveyard downstairs of old medical supplies, old crutches, wheelchairs, standers, and these things looked like they came straight out of medieval times. Um, one of the standers was a box with a lock on it. Like it was, it came up to a kid's armpits. You just stood them in the box and they could stand there and wait bare on their legs. Like, (coughs) oh my God. It was the most interesting thing for me to go down to that basement. But one day I said, well, why can't Dylan walk? Did anybody say like, why? Why can't he? Because he's pulling himself up on the furniture. He's not weight bearing on his legs, but he's pulling himself up on the furniture. 
So we started putting him in a Riften walker. So it's basically, if you all remember the old school walkers, I'm not sure if they took them out of the United States, but they don't let us have them here in the Canada anymore, where you sit the baby in the middle and they have a tray and they just walk all over the house. Um, that's basically what a Riften walker is, but you can control the wheels. And so we popped him in one. Guess who stood up on his legs? Cool. So we would try him in that for a little bit. And then after he got good at that, we started giving him walking sticks with, um, with plungers, toilet plungers on the bottom so that they would stick to the floor for him so that he wasn't falling down. Um, and within about a year and a half, Dylan was walking with sticks. Last time I was home, I was at the grocery store and I saw this kid and I was like, who is that kid? And mind you, his gait is all over the place. But I was like, that's Dylan. So I was talking to a former coworker. I said, have you seen Dylan lately? She's like, oh yeah, Dylan doesn't walk with sticks anymore. Dylan just walks. I was like, well, that's super great. Dylan just walks. Um, another one of our kids, Kai, he wasn't supposed to walk either. And lo and behold, Kai is walking. Kai is doing all kinds of things. He was out skiing today, actually. Um, not on his two feet skiing, but sit in a sit ski apparatus that he goes skiing every Friday and Saturday. And so it's pretty amazing that our kids have such abilities. And a lot of the times the, the medical community would come in and say, no, 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 they can't. They just can't. And we would say, okay, but you guys aren't here most of the day. So we're going to play with it. And then we're going to show you what they can do. Um, this also went for like communication. Uh, had this sweet girl named Kamaya. Oh my gosh. Her smile would just melt you. Jeff, you remember Kamaya? Um, if I saw a picture, I probably would. You probably would. Yeah. Um, and so she would sing and giggle. And there's two very important moments I remember with Kamaya. I got to go to my first um, neurology appointment with her. And the neurologist was asking like, what's the day at daycare like? What's she doing with her friends? And I'd say, oh, Kamaya laughs all the time. And she said, no, no, she doesn't have the ability to laugh because she only had one strip of gray, gray matter in her brain when she was born. And they had said she wasn't going to live for like, any more than a couple of days. At this point, Kamaya was five. So she had already proven them wrong there. So I was like, what do you mean she can't laugh? She was like, no, no, she doesn't have that part of her brain. She doesn't have that ability. So I looked at Kamaya, I was like, buddy, come on. So I flipped her over on my legs as we did every day and I bounced her and she giggled and she giggled and she giggled. And her neurologist was like, she shouldn't be able to do that. I said, it doesn't matter what she shouldn't be able to do. This child laughs every day. And her neurologist was just dumbfounded. And I walked out of there annoyed that they would just look at her and say she can't when she does already. That's even worse than when she doesn't and nobody bothers to try. Nobody bothered to try to make you laugh ever in your life just because a medical person said that you can't. You know, um, so much of what I work with or what I believe in about teachers is that we often um, do things with children or for children because they either weren't done for us 
when we were children and so we want to kind of redeem ourselves in some way or um, what people did for us was so beneficial that we want to continue that share it mm -hmm. so what part of that was for you I mean because you're seeing in people you know what they're able to do when other people don't see it um, so what for you personally, what made you understand that? Were people not seeing in you what you had? And so you want to do that for children? Or did they so much accept you that you want to share it? Or, or any of the above? Um, and I think kind of it's a blend of the above. I had people and family members that were like, oh, Denise, She's just Denise. She does whatever. Like she's never going to do anything. But then I had the paths of the world that were, that were like, Oh, Denise, I know her. Like there's no doubt in my mind, she's going to change things. And so I always, I was always one. My mom always taught me never gravitate to those people that say that you can't uh -huh. never. And she raised us that way. When any family members were negative or there was a lot of drama around. Um, we just weren't allowed near those people. And so we were always allowed near people that would lift us up. We were always allowed to spend time with people that would see us for who we were and accept us for who we were. And so I really had a great background of people backing me, even though I made them crazy a lot of the times because I was such a boundary pusher they knew why I would push those boundaries. I was never pushing them to get in trouble. Who were the ones that didn't believe in you? Um, the ones that didn't believe in me were those daycare workers that didn't have time or patience for me to do all the things I wanted to do or needed to do. Um, family members that if I didn't fall in line my dad's side is quite rigid in the, you do things our way. This is how you act at church. This is how you act in the public. Um, and so we just didn't spend a lot of time with those people. And I really, I thank my mom for it all the time because I'll speak to my cousins and my cousins will be like, oh, and they'll start going into family drama. I'm like, but I don't know anything about family drama. And they're like, But how? because my mom was amazing and kept us out of it. Uh -huh. And it really, it really said that in me that we only need the people around us that believe in us, regardless of who we are. Um, because if we surround our people ourselves with those people that don't believe in us, that's when our mental health suffers. That's when we aren't who we need to be. I'm finding this so synchronous because I did a meditation this morning with the Chopra Institute and that's exactly what they were talking about, about empowerment and how we empower ourselves by keeping away from those people who don't believe in us. And uh, I'm so, uh, so fascinated how this has come to pass on the very same day. There you go. That is. Um, and I, I watch, I'm very much a pattern watcher and even... As a child, I didn't notice it, but I had a friend who we had been friends for years, but we'd be friends and then we weren't friends and then we'd be friends and then we weren't friends. I never understood whatever happened to those times that we weren't friends, like what was going on there. And then as I got older, I started looking at the patterns and the patterns were 
she too had groups of friends, but she could only give her time to one friend at a time. She couldn't deal with all three of us in one way. So then as we got older, it continued. If one of us had a major event, she'd be there with that one person, but would totally just ghost the other two. So I finally said to my husband, my father-in-law had passed away and she didn't show up for the funeral. It was in the town. Like she was there and she knew she'd been speaking to me on the phone and she didn't show up. And I said, I am all done. And my husband said, what? I said, I am all done. I can no longer give her my energy and give her my time if she cannot be there for me in a sad moment. And nine months after he had passed away, we were due to get married. And I didn't send her an invitation, nor did she ever call me and ask me where it was. And so I said, all right, that's, that's set in stone for me. If you can't be there in my moment of great grief and my moment of great happiness and not wonder where your invitation was. Like, if you didn't send me one, I'm going to call you and say, Hey, I think it got lost in the mail. Like what happened? Where is it? Um, because I always assume that you and I are good. Um, so then I went home for a summer visit and all of a sudden I get a phone call. Oh, we should go out for coffee. We should hang out. I said, Oh, so you and I need to talk. I said, I wish you all the best in the world. I really do. But this relationship doesn't work. I said, it's been the same pattern my whole life, our whole life. I said, it might work for you, but it doesn't work for me. So again, I wish you all the best in the world. I am well, Greg is well. Um, and I really hope that you and your spouse are well and that you get all the stuff that you ever dreamed of, but we cannot be close. And I really, it was a hard boundary to put in place, but also uh, an eye-opening moment for me um, to say, hey, I'm finally standing up for myself because as a lot of us know, um, being helpers, we tend to put ourselves last. We help all the other people. And then we realize that we are in some trouble and we don't quite often speak up for ourselves. So that was really a big moment for me in deciding, you know what, this isn't working for me. And so what gave you that strength? Um, I think it was just the growth of years and life and just those, those major life things that we all go through. And when, when they say, you know who your people are when bad things happen and who is around, that statement has stuck with me more than any other statement. And I look, I really look to see when I am down and out, not calling anybody, who's calling me, who's so texting, who's checking in. You, you've learned uh, all the years to fight for others, to fight mm -hmm. for all these children who people are not fighting for um, in your, in, in what you're in the story that you tell. Um, but it's much harder to fight for ourselves, isn't it? It is, especially when you're a giver and a doer. And I, as I said, I was raised that way, but also my mom is a helper. My mom is, she still hasn't figured out how to tell people no. And so I've also watched that my whole life. Um, she takes care of senior citizens. I've also done that job. Um, I've cared for some of her clients when she was unable to. And so... 
when I watch my mom saying yes or not saying yes, but still doing for people and then seeing the toll it has on her, um, me coaching her to say, mom, you have to say no. And I was like, hold it. I'm telling mom to say no, but I'm not saying no. I'm still saying yes to others. I'm still doing for putting myself on the back burner. So it really, between my relationship with my mom and my relationship with kids, I've really started to get my own boundaries into place. Is your sister like that? Mm -mm. So is she more like your dad? She is. She's a lot like my dad's side of the family. She's trying to find her helper side, which is really nice. A lot of my um, buds that I do respite with and stuff when I moved out here, um, she took over that respite piece for me when I left. Not that I asked her to. She actually did it. She has a very kind heart. Um, she's just very intimidated by people with special needs. She doesn't know how to approach it. Um, all my cousins cried when they were around her. Um, and I believe she was just so tense that they could feel that and they couldn't be comfortable in it. Um, and so she's getting there, but yeah, she's not the same empathetic person as my mom and I. It's very interesting. Many people have discomfort around people who are other. Um, I remember one of our teachers, we had an inclusion program I was going to have in our, in our childcare center when I was director and we were talking one day in a, in a teacher meeting and one of the teachers had a slip of the tongue and she said, so when does this intrusion program begin? And I said, you mean inclusion, right? And we all laughed because she let it out, right? Yeah. People, people very often feel uncomfortable with people who are very different to us. Yep. And we're all uncomfortable with things that are unknown, right? right. Um, and the unknown... My sister wasn't good with the unknown. She She's more of a worrier than I am. I'm a, is it happening right now? No? Okay. I was at a school here in Edmonton that there was a little guy, um, the main artery going up to his brain was shrinking each year. And so they had a stint in it to keep it open. But the plan was if he died at circle time or if he died in class, we will wheel him out like he was napping because he napped every day and take him to the office and then proceed to go through the process of like calling an ambulance and all that stuff as not to like alert and terrify the children in the class. And I was like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And everybody else was like, what do you mean if he dies in class? Oh my God. Like, what are we supposed to do? I was like, anybody, <laughs> anybody could die in class. We don't know. We have no idea. Like, Oh, I love that you say that anybody can die in class. <laughs> they can. And so that's, and that's where like that psychiatrist that my mom sent me to, she's like, she just gets it. Like, right. right. People, they die. It, it is what it is. Um, does it suck? Is it sad? Yes. Can we talk about it? Sure. Um, but I could drop dead in class. At least we can wheel him out and not bring trauma to others. Uh, so... <laughs> Yeah, this is priceless. Um, yes, I can see. Well, no, I, I can I'm see just worried about. 
I'm just worried about the podcast tomorrow. We need to come up with a <laughs> protocol if uh, if we lose somebody during during one of our because because we we do longer interviews than uh, most of the podcasts I'm involved with, and so if we lose somebody in uh, in an episode, we need to have a protocol for that for those exact same reasons. Is my big concern. <laughs> Uh, I mean, Jeff, what will we? Do? What will you do if I suddenly die in this podcast? Well, when, when we release the episode, it'll just go beep. We'll just have the episode. <laughs> well, I mean, it but could I be me too. You take care of yourself better than I take care of myself. I'm sure. I, <laughs> I can see though um, how you could fall in love with Denise. Yeah, yeah. She's just you know this is the way it is. So you 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 make it through your post your secondary schooling we'll call it um mm -hmm. you maybe it's not maybe it's more credentialing than it is educating for you in some ways yeah. um where what where where are what happens then after that oh where was i 2001 2004 i'm back to cape breton for a little bit no yeah i'm back to cape breton for a little bit <laughs> that was when i went back and worked at the daycare for a year I worked there for a year, year and a half. Um, and then my cousin called me and said, hey, I'm out in Edmonton, you should come visit. And I said, okay, that sounds like a good idea. I have a couple weeks off. Um, did I? No, I'm lying, sorry. Daycare and then school board, Cape Breton school board. And so I was like working in the Cape Breton school board. There was a lot of things I didn't agree with like Kids that needed social service help, but social services couldn't go to their home without a police officer because it was unsafe. But yet we're letting this child go home every day. Um, and like just, it was just so behind the times. And I always say, if you're living in Cape Breton, you're living 10 years behind where you ever were in the first place. Um, Tamara, I'm not sure if you know where Cape Breton is. It's on the east coast of Nova Scotia. Um, little island secluded. We don't have a whole lot going on over there. We might as well be Newfoundland. And so, <laughs> Jeff. it's a very so, beautiful corner of the world. It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> it is so beautiful, but we are so also behind the times because Halifax gets everything and Cape Breton gets nothing, right? The big cities get it and we're just too rural for that. And so I had the summer off. And my cousin said, come visit Edmonton. And it was during a boom at that time, 2006. And I said, just for giggles, let's see if I could get a job. I had a job at a daycare over a phone in under 12 hours. So I had told my dad I was going to visit Edmonton one day. And the next day I said, I got a job in Edmonton. I'm going to move there. And he was like, what? No, no. You're going to visit for a couple weeks. It's like, no, I got a job last night. I was talking to these lovely people that own a daycare and they hired me. Sight unseen over the phone, hired me. And that's like, okay. So I come to Edmonton, go to a daycare in the middle of the city. It has a concrete playground. It's in a creepy alley. Um, so my heart felt real good being there. My dad was still losing his mind because I was taking public transit in the dark in a big city. And I got fired from that job 
six months in. First daycare job I've ever been fired from. What did you do? Oh, I'm okay with that because they wanted me to tell your child, tell you that your child had a great day, even if they didn't. Oh, Tamar, your little guy had a wonderful day. So mind you, your little guy has harmed other humans, been screaming, losing his mind, has needed a whole lot of help. There's something going on with your kid, but I told you he had a great day with us. Now you go home with your child and he is still having those giant emotions. In my mind, you as a parent now feel like a failure because why is he amazing at daycare and absolutely a disaster with me? And in my mind, that was not okay. I was like, we can't be lying to parents. This is not beneficial to kids. This is not beneficial to parents. It's not beneficial to anybody. So I started looking for another job, but I still needed a job to pay the rent. So I stayed. So I pushed their boundaries a little further and I continued to tell people how their children's days were very clearly, very bluntly. One day I'd helped a little guy out because he was scratching things and people because his fingernails were too long. And he said to me, they're long, they're long. And I said, should we cut them? And he said, yes. So I trimmed his fingernails. Apparently that's a big no, 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 no. So between telling parents how their days were and trimming a child's fingernails, um, I was let go for not having the same visions and belief systems that they had. And I said, that's okay with me. I got another job. I start on Monday. And I was fine with that. But I can't work at a place that wants me to lie about how children were. Their emotions and behaviors tell us so much. Maybe they're getting sick. Maybe they're coping with something that we don't know about. There's so many things. And these were two-year-olds, two and three-year-olds. Like they couldn't actually tell their parents how they were feeling or why they were feeling this way. And how dare I lie? So yeah, I was okay. I, 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 let's talk about that for a minute because I, I've got, I don't know where I am here because I, I understand where the program is coming from. You don't, parents, a long day at work, you don't want to want to walk in and hear all this about how crappy your kid was all day. And I, I understand that. And then on the other end of it, I've, I've met too many too many caregivers who the way they go about it, it's almost like they're tattling on the child oh, at yes. the end of the day. So I, I think a, a middle ground, realistic, right. here's the day he, he, he had, he had a couple, a couple uh, uh, traumatic experiences because he's three and there's big emotions. Uh, but all children have those things all the time and, and not, not blowing those, those situations up and, and not telling the parent they have to go home and punish the kid for, for that thing afterwards. But, but being honest is probably a, a good way to proceed, huh? Yeah. And I always do the sandwich, the positive thing, the tough things, the other positive thing, you know, the sandwich, it's how we deal with people. But Sandwiches. this, this <laughs> sandwich well, actually, that may, I'm very suspicious when someone tells me something good because then I know the bad's coming. <laughs> <laughs> but I always top it off with a little more good for you. <laughs> but I, my explanations also came with part of my why. He seems to be a little off today. He was also pulling out his ear. You might want to look at that. 
Like I am a very observant person. I am very analytical. I will, I will dig and poke and prod and find out the cause of something and give you a why. So I, I felt that we were not only just information for a parent, but beneficial to a parent, especially we had a lot of new parents that didn't maybe know the signs of an ear infection, or they didn't know um, when certain molars come in because they think they have all their teeth by the time they're two. Um, So I really think it's beneficial for us to be sharing our knowledge of child development um, with them. Oh, this is, this is why they call the terrible twos, the terrible twos. They have big emotions, but this is the reason for that. Um, and if we can't- He was scratching everybody today, but his fingernails are three inches long. Right. But we took care of that because he asked me to cut them. So I did. And I got in trouble for that because I didn't have consent from a parent to cut their child's fingernails. I was like, I had consent from the person that owns the fingernails. The owner of the fingernails asked me to cut them, so I cut them. You're such a troublemaker. What was the what was the new place like? Was the new place better? Uh, new place was way better. You know my buddy from the new place, Adrian. Oh, I'm I've visited three of the programs you've worked in. Man, you get around, <laughs> Adrian. I haven't talked to Adrian for a long time. Yeah, that was a that was a fun program to visit. Yeah. So my buddy Adrian. And so I got to this daycare and this daycare was lovely. It was inside of a school and um, I was there for six months and all of a sudden I was assistant director. Okay. Had you had any, had you had any plans on moving into that administrative type thing career wise? Um, No, because my deal is I like kids. I don't like adults. Um, (laughs) Training adults is a difficult thing to do. And I'm very clear, like when, even now when my principal is like, I've had a day, I'm like, no doubt in my mind, you've had a day, you deal with adults all day long. I would not want your job. And so give me the two and three-year-olds. They are my favorite humans on the entire earth. And that's who I'm happiest with. But I was there and things were going great. And there was a lot of like, we did huge field trips. We would take like 30 kids on a city bus to the West Edmonton mall. (laughs) Yup. To go ice skating or to go to the beach? Um, To see the underground sea caverns. Yep. Watch the sea lion show. Um, We took them to recording studios to record all their favorite songs on white avenue because white ave is hipster and fun and it was like all summer we would do two field trips a week all summer long it was amazing um the assistant director thing kind of fell into my lap i did it because i loved the girl that used to be the assistant director and she moved up to director for a mat leave and i stayed for that mat leave But then this daycare was in a school and this is how I got hooked into the school system. So as we know, daycare workers and early educational assistants do not get paid what they are worth. That is a whole other podcast. Um, But living in Edmonton alone, I needed as much money as I could make. So the admin assistant of the school came to me one day and she said, why on earth are you working in a daycare? You can't make any money there. And I said, well, this is my why. And she's like, 
but are you surviving or are you living on the money that you're making? I said, okay, fine. So she got me hired onto the school board without an interview with the board. (laughs) I was only allowed to work at that school and the sister school across the street. And uh, if I wanted to move to any other school, I would need to then go downtown and have an interview and then be allowed to work at any other school. So I was like, that's fine. That just means you can't kick me out of the two schools that I currently work at. And I'm good. So (laughs) I started working there and I was there for two years when I went home. And while I was home for the summer, I started hanging out with the guy who is now my husband. Um, But at the time I said, I have a job to go to. I can't stay in Cape Breton. I have to go back to Edmonton. Um, And that's another thing instilled in me and my parents is you don't back out of a commitment. If that commitment is important to you, and if you have already told them it's happening, it's happening. So I said, I have to go back to Edmonton for at least a year. This is how it is. I'll come home at Christmas. We can see if it's still working, whatever. So I went back to the school system. I was working at the school across the street and I was an educational assistant with amazing teachers. The teachers I happened to be working with were amazing. One of them is now my best friend. The other one is currently my boss. Um, The other one, I still keep in contact with him, although he's teaching in Bali. Um, So it was just a good moment. And it just so happens to be that school is the school I'm currently at now. And so the end of that year, I said, I'm moving home to Nova Scotia. I don't know if I'll ever be back. It is what it is. And so away I went back home to Nova Scotia. Um, That's when I met you, actually. Um, When I started working at We Care, I met you, found you, brought you up for a, a conference that we had. And we were in Halifax for three years when my husband's work said, um, we're going to move you. Where do you want to go? And I was like, oh, no. You know what? Can we make Edmonton our first choice? Because I already know the area. I can walk back into my job with no problem. My husband's like, well, that's awful confident of you. Nobody's offered you a job. I was like, no one needs to offer you a job when you do your work, when you know your stuff. And when you can be confident in that. So we moved back to Edmonton uh, seven years ago. And literally a week after arriving, I was back at work. And he's like, how did you know that? I said, I know it because I don't burn bridges. And I know my stuff. So that's where we are now. Well, I think that's one thing about this profession. If you have demonstrated any level of competence Finding a job in early learning um, isn't isn't going to be a challenge in in most communities. I mean, there's going to be there's going to be some places where that's not true. But if you're in a decent sized community and you've got a track record of being heck dependable in this in this profession, not even competent, maybe just dependable, you're gonna you're gonna find a job. But if you if you have skills, um, people are gonna people are gonna not only give you jobs, they're gonna seek you out. Yep. And that's totally it. I know if I walk back into Halifax, I can walk back into a job. And children of your own? I do not. I was never blessed with children of my own. And um, maybe, maybe someday I'm 
getting up there. They call me geriatric in the egg world. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but we'll see. That frees you up to be with those children completely. It, it frees me to really fill me at the end of the day as well. I often say to my coworkers that have children at home, I don't know if I could. I don't know if I could continue doing this job and give enough of myself to my own children. Um, The other thing that my husband has made very clear is that I wouldn't be able to allow somebody else to raise my child. (laughs) Um, That he would expect that I would want to be home um, because I don't want someone giving my kid a worksheet and making them sit at circle when they could be doing so many other things. He's like, you voice this with other people's children, Denise. Could you imagine if they were your own? It's really hard to pass them over to people that aren't going going to know what to do. And I have a friend that's like, well, I'm looking at this daycare because it's close to my home. I'm like, no, 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 no. Proximity cannot determine your daycare. Right. You need to walk in. You need to feel like it's home. If you feel uncomfortable, your kid is not going to feel comfortable. There are so many. I said, even if 50 people tell you this is an amazing daycare, if it does not match with your belief system for your child, it is not your daycare. And it's as simple as that. Right. And they just, they're always like, oh, Denise, she's so opinionated. But it's true. I always hear Lisa say, if I wouldn't give these people keys to my house and my car, then why would I pass them my child? Right. Right. And I, I think it all the time. And I was like, we do it at a school too. Here you go. Go to school. Especially now teachers or parents haven't even laid eyes on our staff this year. They don't even know who most of us are. So well, go ahead tomorrow. No, no, that's okay. I, I, I've got two questions. Um, one Tamar has said a number of times in this in this uh, recording session that you appear to be somebody who doesn't suffer fools. Um, how do you continue to work in a a school system? Um, my experience <laughs> my experience with such systems is there are there there's an ever ending supply of fools. And I, I, I admire you because I wouldn't be able to have such a job just because I wouldn't be able to deal with the bureaucracy and uh, BS that, 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 would, that come with working inside such a system. How do you, how do you survive and, and apparently thrive in that system? So in that system, you need an amazing, amazing, amazing principal. Let's just start there. Forget it. If you have a terrible principal it is not even worth showing up to work. Um, When I arrived in Edmonton, I took a job um, at an interactions classroom and that interactions classroom, so this is all kids with autism. uh, Of course, it was all new teachers showing up all the time. And the EAs were staying forever, but those EAs got complexes of, this is my classroom and I know how to run it. Um, They were also the kind of people that, would push buttons and cause the children to have meltdowns and spin outs. And I'm like, this is not the environment for me. So then I went to a different school. I worked in the early ed program here in Edmonton. Um, early ed, if your child presents with a severe delay or two mild moderate delays, they can start school at the age of three, two and a half, three. Um, that terrified me 
when I first heard it, because I was like, I don't think anybody should be in school at that age. Um, so I worked in that program for half of a school year and it was pretty good. Um, except for the fact that they have one community child. So one typically developing child in a classroom of eight to 10 children with speech delays, autism, um, behavior issues, visual issues. They have one child that could clearly speak and model life. So I was like, well, these ratios are very much all over the place. This isn't the spot for me. So then within that school, there was a program called the STEP program. This was like early ed for kids with autism. And we got to go into homes. So I was like, excellent. I can go into a home and help parents understand their kid and help them grow and learn before they get in deep into the school systems that they can be great advocates for their kids. This works for me, except for the principal of that school did not want to give me a full-time position. The day my supervisor's daughter walked out of high school and got hired on and got the exact same paycheck as me was the day I said, I'm all done. I have way too much experience for this and you are not getting me for free because I am valuable. So I called, I have run into my old teacher at the time who had become a principal. And she said, well, Denise, all I have in my school is I have this guy, he's super high needs, he's high medical, um, he's nonverbal, he has seizures. I was like, ooh, 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 that's my people. That's my people. She's like, no, no, that can't be your people. I was like, why? Why do you think that can be my people? She said, you cannot be good with kids with behaviors. You cannot be amazing with LD kids and be have medically fragile kids as your people. I was like, just give me them. Just give me them, please. And she was like, okay. So I was in my glory. I walk in, this mom brings in this guy who reminds me so much of my little cousin that my heart almost burst out of my chest. I was so happy. I was like, Hey buddy, what's up? Like, let's go. And I'm still in contact with the family. And the mom always says to me, you were the first person to ever walk up to my kid and not even acknowledge me, just look him in the eyes and speak to him. And then you terrified me. You said, say bye to mom, have a good day. And you just walked away. You didn't know anything about my kid. What are you doing? Like, who does that girl think she is? And she said, that's all I could think that whole day was who does that girl think she is? She doesn't know my child. She doesn't know what's going on with him. And she said, when we walked in that next day and you bent down to speak to him and he threw his hands in your hair and pulled on your hair. And that was his way of saying hello. And we learned that very quickly. Um, she said, my heart melted. And I just knew, I just knew that you knew him. I knew that he was hundred percent comfortable with you. And that's how things were going to be. So I was like, yeah. And then my boss was like, they are your people. Hey, they're like they're hundred percent my people. So it's, so it's about finding that goodness of fit. Oh, a hundred percent finding that goodness of fit. But I also have boundaries with that. I have a personal rule that I will not work with a child for more than two years. And the reason is, is when we pair a child and a family with the same educational assistant or the same teacher for multiple years in a row, um, they really start to get complacent and they start to rely on each other a little too much. 
the relationship goes beyond school. It gets really woven when it comes to highly medical kids. Um, and so two years in at this point, I have him, uh, I have all my documentation. If you ever want to learn about Will, he's amazing. So nonverbal seizure disorder, little bit of control over his left hand, um, cortical visual impairment. So he couldn't see a whole lot. He could see a little bit, um, tube fed, medicated braces on his feet in a wheelchair, the whole gamut in a regular grade two class. And I was able to give him a visual yes, no system to the point that he could work with his peers on a project for 45 minutes without adult interaction. So this is what inclusion is supposed to look like, is that the teachers move away, the adults move away and the kids actually have relationships with the child. But this doesn't mean a lot of kids didn't like me. I've heard these words so many times in my life when advocating for a kid with special needs. Well, you're not very nice. Well, if you're going to come and lay on top of Will, who's eight, and kiss on his cheeks, would you do that to any other child in this school? Well, no. Well, then why are you doing it to Will? He is eight. You are eight or nine. You don't get the right to lay all over him and kiss all over him. This is his body. So I do a lot of that banging as my dog, by the way. Um, I do a lot of boundary building when I first show up. And I also, you don't have to like me. I'm not here for you to like me. I'm here for you to learn how to be friends with this guy. And so the kids, all of my messages from them like thank you for helping me understand well thank you for helping me uh learn to talk to well they we learned that um he had book preferences nobody knew he had book preferences because he couldn't speak but we went to the library and the kids held up some books he said no to a couple then he said yes to one in talking to mom he had said no to oh gosh what was the first one Oh, he had said no to Amelia Bedelia. And she said, yeah, none of my kids like Amelia Bedelia. There we go. He had said no to the Berenstain Bears. And in talking to dad, he's like, oh, we hate the Berenstain Bears. And when he said yes to Horton, here's a who, they said, well, that makes sense. The cover is red. It was a color he could see. And the family had been reading rhyming books. So his communication was so spot on to stuff that wasn't even engaged in school. Like he was connecting outside with the school, um, but there was no doubt that it was working. Fast forward to the next year when I choose to not be with him, I choose to go help another child be integrated into the school. And we have a new principal at this time. They had taken my favorite principal away from me as the board does. Sometimes they pick and choose where principals go. Um, And the EA that he got didn't believe in presumed competence. Well, he's not really saying yes or no. Well, the data that we have, and there wasn't just the book data, like we have all kinds of data says that he can says that it's working. And um, she went and complained enough to the principal that they took away his communication system. 
I cried and I cried and I cried and I cried and I quit. I left. I said, I can't, I cannot be in a school that takes away a child's opportunity to speak. This is unreal, unreal. So I apologized to Will and I left. It was, it was yeah, hard. I, mean, I cannot imagine how difficult it is to work under these circumstances because you so believe in the child and you know it because you, you observe and you care. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a very tough thing, very tough thing. Well, that, that kind of leaves the, the second question I had. Denise, I know you, you mentioned having some, setting some boundaries, and I, I'm, I'm sure that helps you keep your sanity. Um, <laughs> you know, a lot, of, a lot of what I work on in this, in this profession is, is caregiver self-care so that we can be in the moment and focused um, with the kids we're working with. And I got to ask, how do you... Look, you described what's going on, the realities of, of Will, and you just going through that list of the realities of his life exhausted me. And, and yet you've been working with children with similar challenges for your whole career. How do you, how do you recharge? How do you, how do you keep yourself in the game? Um, they are my recharge. They, they are 100% my recharge. When I hear from Will's mom saying, oh, none of my kids like that book. When I hear friends say, oh my goodness, we had such a great time doing art. Or look at this, Will picked the exact same colors as his pants and his shirt. When I see other EAs, I actually got to start teaching other EAs how to integrate uh, other medically fragile kids and other highly nice please um other fragile kids how to actually allow them to learn in the classroom because inclusion and integration is not that your body is physically in the space just because your body's physically there and there's an ea there to wipe your nose and hold your hand that does not mean that you are learning in that classroom and so um, Will's dad happened to be a curriculum coordinator within our school board. And he said, Denise, come teach people. Come teach people what you do with my boy um, so they can do it with other children in our school board because it needs to be happening. And so I did. I would go around and I would do PDs and I would have EA say, but this kid this, but this kid this. And I'm like, but nothing. Have you tried? And they said, well, it took you two years to do that with Will. I said, how many words does a toddler hear before they ever speak? Before they ever speak, how many words? I said, constantly. I said, I only showed him yes and no a million times a day for two years. That's not enough. That's not enough exposure to it for him to be able to already be telling me all the things he can tell me. And so when my kids walk, when my kids advocate for themselves. And that's where I'm at now because I might not have medically fragile kids, but I have mentally fragile kids. Right now they come to me broken. Um, kids with learning disabilities need to have a two year gap in their learning. So they do not diagnose a learning disability till grade two or higher. Quite often, especially in girls, learning disabilities aren't noticed until grade four. Um, when they kind of stop teaching you how to read, you should already know how to read. Why can't you read? What's wrong with you? 
Then they start asking questions. Well, there goes a year asking questions. Then they get you on the psychology list. Well, guess what? That's a year or two wait list. Now it's grade six or seven before you come to us. You're already broken. Your spirit is broken. You can't do anything. You're failing all the time. People are laughing at you. You've created um, strategies to get through life. So now when they come to me, I'm breaking down those strategies and those walls that they've built to survive our school system. Literally, these kids are just trying to survive our school system. So, and, so, one, so one moment. Have you answered Jeff's question? I don't know. <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> so in other words, you don't need any self-care. I, I, they are my self-care. They, they truly, 100%, like when I come home and I share with my husband and I tell him about my day, he knows when my kids have had a good day. If ah, I've so wait day, a second. Your husband helps you with self-care. Oh, he does. He listens. Sometimes he listens. <laughs> if I listen, <laughs> um, sharing stories, sharing stories with my mom. I, my mom come, totally understands. So sharing stories with my mom is a big one. Celebrating with families is a big one um on super hard days sometimes staring at the wall is a big one um just to sort of shut everything down and not have to think anymore uh reading novels about people that have overcome Mm -hmm. is another one uh there's a book called ghost boy it's the story of a boy from south africa who lost the ability to speak in his preteen years. And then somebody helps him with some augmentative communication. And this book is written by him and all the things he remembers people doing to him instead of for him um, throughout his life before somebody believed in his ability to communicate. Because and communicate- what about your dog? Oh, she's, she's something. Come here. <laughs> <laughs> Is your self care too? Say hello, hello. Yes, <laughs> she is. She is self care. She is. She is a character to say the least. Um, this morning, on my chest, tapping her tail at six o'clock is a little less self care, but self care nonetheless. To wake up full of love. Uh, my friends going out concerts used to be. Yeah. Not so much anymore. Not allowed. Maybe someday. Yeah, maybe someday. I'm excited. There's a Van Gogh exhibit coming. I at least get to go to that. Well, that'll be good. We're speaking of someday. Where where do you? I mean, you're you're still on the first half of your professional journey. Where where do you do you do you have any plans, dreams, ambitions for the future? More more of the same, or more helping educate other caregivers, or or what are you what are you looking at? Gosh, it's a good question. The The statement of you should be a teacher comes up all the time. Um, that's a hard no. Um, and for all the reasons you listed before, the bureaucracy of it all, the tight boundaries that you're in, the lack of choice, the absolute lack of choice. So I've said a thousand times, no, that isn't an option. What does that mean you should be a teacher, like a teacher of teachers? No, like an like an educating teacher, like a grade school teacher. Oh my goodness! No, I'd rather I'd rather you teach 
people to take care of children. Yeah. That, yeah. I think it would be wonderful at that. And so the only, I've thought about it multiple times, but I just don't know how, how does one even get into it? Well, you've got to like, have another license. I write more paperwork, more money, more, and it's always the way. And I often say to my mom, I was born in the wrong generations because if this was the eighties, I could just make it up and pretend it's a real thing. And someone would say, okay, <laughs> do that. So right now I'm taking all the opportunities I can to educate our educational assistants here in Edmonton to give at least our kids a fighting chance in the school system. Um, I am a nonviolent crisis intervention trainer. So with that in our board, I am able to, and a lot of people see nonviolent crisis as like, I can put you in a hold and move you but they've really changed their direction of things. And it's all about um, connection and relationship over all those other pieces. So that gives me another avenue of saying, listen, this is what's best for kids. These connections, these moments are what's best for kids. And so it gives me a a little step up. Um, This year I took my training to be um, a babysitting trainer for the Red Cross so that our kids with learning disabilities could learn properly how to care for children. So I'm teaching them to be good humans. And some of them said, well, what if I don't want to babysit? I said, someday you'll be a parent and you'll thank me for this course and that you have my information and that you know at least some stuff going in. Um, so that's, that's where I'm at. Um, I hope to not work forever. I hope I'm not as early in as you think I am, Jeff, <laughs> like retirement at some point. Right. You're, um, you're just a, you're just a pup. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and Denise, another thing Denise does is is you you are a teacher, um, all, all, although it may be informal. Because I know personally, I've I've had situations where somebody's dealing with somebody, some a situation. I thought, oh, the Denise is exactly who you need to be be able to talk to. And every time that's happened, you've been more than happy to to serve as a as a resource for that person dealing with that thing, where they can take advantage of your your experience and expertise and so there is that informal opportunity to to be a a a support person for other people in the field as well it's yeah it's always remarkable to me how we always come back to connections and relationship it's so important yep it totally is and i i truly believe i am a teacher in many ways um but it's it's actual like bachelor of education to teach degree teachers that are saying I need to be a teacher and being an educational assistant I have the opportunity to connect with way more children than if I had only my own classroom yeah and they'll say but you don't get paid enough oh I'm aware all educate all early childhood educators are aware that we don't get paid enough 100% if it was up to me I'd be back at the daycare but financially it's not worth it to be back at the daycare yeah. So it, it's something I struggle with quite often. And I've often thought about how, and maybe it's time to start looking into it, is how do, and they're even professors, how do the educators of early childhood education in like community colleges and things like that, 
how do they go about getting their credentials to do what they do? Because I could do that. I could teach a special ed course. No doubt in my mind. Like, you want me to teach it? Done. Just tell me what time I got to show up and put some people in front of me. I'll talk. I guess you'll need a master's. You, you would. But what I have are diplomas. So then I need to get a degree before a master's. And then it's like, where's okay, all so, so Denise, when I was 40, I went back to school. I had an associate's degree, uh-huh. my BA, my master's and my doctorate. It took 10 years. And then I could teach in a community college or, or a university. It's, it's time for you, my darling. Yeah. And uh, you can do it. Oh, there's no doubt in my mind I can do it. The money stresses me out. <laughs> ah. Well, maybe there's so many online things that are not so expensive. But anyway, that's another wholesome. And, and you're in Alberta. <laughs> I am. El- I mean, Alberta, from my experiences, Alberta throws, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of oil money floating around that province, and they do a lot to support their people. So there's got to be something out there, huh? No. Uh, last time you were here, we were socialist run, and now we're conservative run. Yeah, the money's still there. The money's there. They don't like it to give it to people with no, education. I, this is not a money issue. This is, this is, again, you believe in all these children, but you don't believe enough in yourself. It's, I agree. It's true. It's true. <laughs> I got your number there. You did. Tamar, <laughs> <laughs> any final questions for Denise before we, uh, we send her back to college, apparently? <laughs> <laughs> Just the one, the one, one question were, um, what were some of the things you did before you, you knew better? So, oh gosh, some of the things. Well, I let's did. just say one, because otherwise you're going to go crazy here. Thematic based learning. Aha. Uh-huh. Before I knew better, when we started going this route of we talk about dinosaurs on February the 3rd every year of life, no wonder the kids didn't care. I didn't care. I always wonder about why children would care about dinosaurs anyway. I mean, you can't really see any dinosaurs wandering around. Oh, I know, Jeff. I know. I can see it. (laughs) One second, you bring to a jar of dead things. No, oh, there. Yeah. This is a piece I, I, of a triceratops. I got you. I got you. But for a child, it's just like one of those monsters in, on the TV. Yeah, I think that's why we like them. Uh, <laughs> Denise, is there anything we... about this, Jeff? You and I. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Denise, is there anything we didn't ask you that we should have? Mm, I don't think so. There's. My story is so crazy long. It could be days. So, and as you know, I'm super shy and say nothing. Uh-huh. Yeah, you're 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 quite the <laughs> you're quite the reticent wallflower. That's my that's my experience. Um look, I I think this is going to be part 1 with Denise. I think in 10 or 15 years tomorrow and I'll be back with uh yeah. with part 2 uh to fear to hear where the journeys went from there. Um Denise, it's been delightful. We've uh we've bent our mm-hmm. elbows a couple times, have times having beers and cocktails and and hanging out. I hope that happens again at some point in the future when the world is is normal again, but thank you so much for sharing your story with our listeners. It's been great. Oh, to absolutely. See. 
You're doing such wonderful work for those children. Anytime. This has been Early Learning Journeys. We will be back soon with another episode. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.